I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Jab satisfaction. Cameroon is scaling up its fight against malaria. A doctor there tells us what it's like to be part of the world's first routine vaccinations for the deadly mosquito-borne illness. The unpopular vote. We'll talk to a woman who's backing Nikki Haley, the last candidate challenging Donald Trump for the Republican nomination because she likes who Ms. Haley is and, crucially, who she isn't. Seeking closure after a closure, a Manitoba truck driver feels strongly that it's time for a new direction on closing roads in bad weather after he and other drivers spent nearly three days stuck on a snowy stretch of Ontario Highway in whiteout conditions. Seeing and making the big picture. Remembering the great Canadian director Norman Jewison, whose unforgettable work ranged from rom-coms to musicals to dramas that dealt head-on with injustice. It's a great discovery, but he has no alter ego. An Irish folklorist describes the moment he found a stone from the sun altar, a forgotten tomb that dates back thousands of years. And bear false witness. New research finds that Sasquatch sightings are more frequent in areas with higher populations of bears. So I guess somebody should warn the Sasquatches. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that puts its best big foot forward. Today, a pair of twins in Cameroon received vaccines. And those shots marked a historic moment for Cameroon, according to the World Health Organization, which says the babies were the first to receive vaccines as part of a new immunization campaign for children. Today, Cameroon launched what's being described as the world's first routine vaccine program against malaria. It follows pilot programs in several other countries. Bianca Levencliff Fornjok is the senior immunization program officer with the nonprofit Value Health Africa in Cameroon. We reached him in Limbe. Doctor, how will you remember this day? Uh, I think for me, this day is a remarkable day. It marked a milestone in health advancement. And not only health advancement, and also for communities that have been hoping for a miracle and for a tool that can effectively support them in combating malaria. So for me, I feel proud as a public health expert. And I say I'm filled with excitement as what the future holds in the coming weeks and months in, in my country. Is there a moment from the day that that you'll keep in your mind? Absolutely. This moment I just want to share with you um, an encounter I, I had with a mother who had lost her first child due to severe malaria in the district hospital. So when she met me today and she asked me a question, Dr. Bianche, so with this vaccine, am I sure these children that I have now will be protected and I will not lose any of them. You see, that, that question posed by a parent who has been worried about the safety and the well-being of her children 
got me thinking throughout the campaign today. And as gentle as I could say, I was like, ma, this vaccine is an additional tool that I can guarantee that will help you and your children to stay healthy. And I can say if you combine these vaccines and all the preventive measures that are available, I think that it's a big step to guarantee your children to live healthy and for them to go to school without any problem. It's a tool, as you said, and it's important to stress that this GlaxoSmithKline shot is about 30% effective. It does require four doses. So is that creating challenges for you as you try to get people to roll up their sleeves here? I think for for a number of doses, it hasn't posed a challenge because, you know, with routine immunization, I think most parents are already familiar that they need to get some certain number of doses for a certain level of immunity. I think the main concerns for these parents have been the level of efficacy because as we communicate to them that this is 30 to 40% effective. So you need to combine this and all the other preventive measures that are available and to communicate to them that even if your child gets a vaccine, they may still fall sick. So that has been the challenge. A number of doses have not been the challenge, but the challenge to effectively communicate to them that this is just an additional tool. It's not like this is the magic one that when you flip and everything just changes mm-hmm. and your child will never get malaria and all that because this was what they were hoping. They were hoping that once a child is vaccinated, the child will never get malaria. They will be guaranteed immunity for life. But unfortunately, it is not so. Mm-hmm. So communicating this to these families is a great challenge, you need, especially you need bed when their still. hopes will be very high. Yeah, you still exactly. need bed nets and the other tools, as you mentioned. Reuters journalists are reporting that they've seen few people um, in clinics getting the shot at this point and reported that one parent said they didn't know this rollout was happening. So what you were just saying there in terms of communicating this, how are you doing that? How are you making sure that the information and the correct information gets to people so they feel up those clinics. I must confess to you that has been the great challenge because you know the doses were supplied to to the Cameroon government without the substantial finances to actually prepare communities for the launch. And I felt like we were underprepared because doses went out and we were launching without heavy, heavy community preparation. It takes yeah. months of preparation, months of educating them, months of sensitizing them. Most of making your minds to grasp up of what, what is happening now. Yeah. If you don't do that, you have a lot of misinformation and rumors. Gavi, we should mention, is the Vaccine Sharing Alliance, and you're, you're a member of the Gavi CSO Steering Committee. What has Gavi said in response to, to your concerns about addressing those, that misinformation and assuaging parents' concerns? Yeah, I think what Gavi gave me that response in, I think, working at the Gavi and we were trying to ask these weekend questions and see how we can we can solve the puzzle. And I think what we were saying is, we, we look at the doses. Cameroon received a total of 632,000 doses. But to be honest, this is a dose that is just for a single district. And Cameroon is rolling out at the moment in 42 districts. So I think the better response is, they are not enough doses to really roll out to every child. But Gavi is working hard and pushing manufacturers to make sure that we have equity in doses. I think that that is the big thing we're discussing with Gavi, how we can push manufacturers. And the good news is 
there is already a second vaccine that has been accepted by WHO and that will also be in circulation. I think yeah, this that's... will also help us in mitigating the supply challenges. And that's the Oxford vaccine, which we've spoken about on our program before. How long before that day comes when no child, no person dies from malaria in Cameroon? Unfortunately, I will still say we still have a lot of work to do because the vaccines is not like 100% effective. Mm-hmm. In my city, like Limbe, which is about 25 and 27 degrees hot at the moment, I can't guarantee you that there are families that will sleep under a mosquito net because the average families don't even have a fan or an AC for good ventilation. How do we imagine sleeping under mosquito nets in such temperatures? So I would say there is still a lot to do, and I think there's a long way to go for us to see no child in Cameroon die for severe malaria. But I think we are on the right track, and this vaccine gives us a hope to believe, to dare, and to move forward. Bianca, thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Bianca Levencliff Fornjock is the Senior Immunization Program Officer with the nonprofit Value Health Africa. We reached him in Limbe, Cameroon. Norman Jewison was a Canadian film legend, but he had to leave Canada to become one. The director's Hollywood credits included Fiddler on the Roof, Jesus Christ Superstar, The Thomas Crown Affair, and Moonstruck, among other classics. He died this weekend in Malibu, California, at the age of 97. He was born in Toronto, and he started out here at the CBC in Toronto before moving south, and spent a considerable part of his later life trying to cultivate the kind of Canadian film incubator he did not benefit from in his early career. In 1987, he spoke with As It Happens about a huge part of that chapter, the opening of what is now known as the Canadian Film Centre. This is looking from the standpoint that that film is the literature of our generation. Uh, Like books, uh, films are forever. And uh, hopefully out of this centre will come uh, the producers, the directors, the writers... Uh, perhaps some editors and cinematographers uh, who will hopefully put Canada and uh, the expression of its people on the screens of the world. Norman Jewison speaking on this program in 1987. Clement Virgo is a film and television writer, producer, and director. He sits on the board of the Canadian Film Centre. We reached him in Toronto. Clement, which came first for you? Uh, seeing a Norman Jewison film or meeting Norman Jewison in person? His films came came first to me, and at, at, and the film was in the heat of the night. And, uh, of course, you know, Sidney Poitier was a hero of mine and a hero of a lot of mm-hmm. you know, diasporic, you know, young black people. And so that film was, was absolutely seminal. And there's a moment in that film that I think everyone knows and that resonates with me. And um, when Sidney Poitier says... They called me Mr. Tibbs, as in in in, res, in reference to Rod Steiger, you know, asking him what they 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 call him in uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. And for me, as a young 
film, you know, aspiring artists, filmmakers, seeing that film was really, it was, uh, it was a, a moment in the yeah. cinema that was, I'll never forget. I never, I'll never forget seeing it in school. We had just read the book and we watched the movie in class, uh, and I, I'll never forget the moment I, I, I heard that as well. Yeah. So he, this movie already has such meaning for you. Yes. And then how do you come to meet Norman Jewison? Well, I mean, you know, just before you, you, uh, I, I tell you that, um, you know, one of my fondest memories is uh, having uh, Sidney Poitier and Norman Jewison sit in a theater oh. and watch a film that I made actually for the CBC, a, a TV film called The Planets of Junior Brown, and um, and I showed Norman the film, and 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 Sidney Poitier was happen- just happened to be in, tour- in town, and then Norman had arranged for for himself and Sidney to watch the film again, and I was so um, I was so blessed to have that uh, memory. But I met uh, Norman Jewison at, at the Canadian Film Center. I was, you know, um, in 1991. The film center set up a, a program for uh, young filmmakers of color, and then uh, you know while I was there, I made a short film, and you know I'd met him from time to time, and then I made my first feature film, Rude, and that film, um, you know I was trying to, I was having trouble with the film. It was it was a bit long, and I I, could, I, I didn't know how to edit it down, and I and I reached out to Norman, and um, and uh, he came into the editing room, and he and he watched the film with me, and then he gave me some fantastic notes. And after he gave me those notes, the, the film ended up going to the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. And then I really became close with him after I made my first uh, feature film, and uh, he became my uh, mentor. What kind of advice did he give you? I mean, I'm sure there's so much over the years, and you shared an office. You, uh, you were in the same office building, I should say, for, for quite some time. But but what did he teach you that stays with you today? Norman just, just has a fantastic eye. You know, he, he understands story so well. And he really helped me to really hone in on what the story of the film should be, um, you know, because he was such a fantastic, fantastic storyteller. And, um, and you know, and, and uh, you know, we became quite close after that. I, w- I was just reading a little bit more about him. I know him as a filmmaker, of course, but apparently he used to drive a taxi. Uh, he did some acting, also worked here at CBC yes. Radio. What did he tell you about his cab driver days? <laughs> Well, I mean, he, he he told me stories about about his whole life, really. You know, he told me stories about um, when he was a you know a young soldier and after the war, and uh, when he was traveling in in the American South, and uh, you know he made the mistake of uh, sitting at the back of the bus where only black people were supposed to sit, and and the bus driver called him out for that, and uh, and he was. As a young Canadian traveling in the South with his uniform on, was kind of perplexed. He subsequently ended up in New York working for people, uh, you know, doing shows for, for Harry Belafonte, yeah. um, you know, and 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 so he's, uh, you know, Norman Jewison is a, he's rare in a sense that he was uh, a liberal in, in in the best sense of the word, you know, he 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 was a champion of 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 causes, and he and he knew people like Robert. Kennedy and you know um, he was at Martin Luther King's funeral and um, and you know he's in my mind you know he's made three of the best black films you know with um, in the heat of the night the soldier story and of course the hurricane. What did he tell you about tackling those topics from his vantage point and and how did that feel for you that that it was him telling these stories? You, you know. Um, 
he, he would talk about this, the challenges. I remember, you know, he, he would talk about doing shows for like uh, Harry Belafonte and how, how how the audience in the South wouldn't accept his show, but with, you know, uh, his talent and Harry Belafonte's talent that, uh, you know, those shows uh, could not be denied. And he talked about, um, you know, he, he, he talked about Robert Kennedy and how Robert Kennedy told him that timing is everything, you know, in life and in art. And, and you know, coming from someone who, when you see and meet with Norman, he there is a real smart there. He's one, mm-hmm. probably one of the smartest people that I've met. And his instincts around timing and around art and around and around cinema is so impeccable, yeah. you know. Um, and, you know, I, it's uh, sort of, it's, it's kind of like hitting me now that he's he's gone, you know, and I haven't really processed it. It's the first time I've actually actually talked about it out loud to oh. kind of process what, you know, what he's meant to me because, you know, I've, I'm, you know, I, as a young filmmaker, being broke and, and had no money and gave us office space for free, you know, um, going to, you know, New York for the first time and being broke and, I'm sorry. No, you take your time. No, um, he was a great man, a great artist, great, you know, a great human being. Clement, I really appreciate you sharing your memories at a difficult time like this. He he means a lot to a lot of people through his films, but clearly so much to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Take care. Clement Virgo is a film and television writer, producer, and director who sits on the board of the Canadian Film Centre. We reached him in Toronto. Norman Jewison died on Saturday. He was 97. About a kilometer from Billy McGlynn's home in County Kerry, there's a piece of Irish history, which his community wouldn't know so much about today if not for him. He's a professor of Irish studies at Sacred Heart University in Dingle, and he found some stone that he says is a piece of the forgotten tomb known as Altor Nagrena, or the Sun Altar, that dates back thousands of years. We reached him in Ballyferreter, Ireland. Billy, transport us if you could. Describe this landscape. Well, at the moment, it's very stark. It's usually very stark, but at the moment, it's quite brown and treeless, but it's very dramatic as well. Uh, Lots of windswept hills here and uh, dramatic ocean swells. So it's nothing but drama here out in the West. (laughs) Lots to draw you to that spot anyway, but what really drew you is something that dates back way back. Uh, but there's documentation yeah. that dates back to 1838. And this this sketch by an English noblewoman, Lady Chatterton, she documented this tomb and drew it. So people like you had an idea of what it once looked like. But then 14 years after that, an antiquarian reports that it had been dismantled and moved. How could that be? Why would that be? It's something of a mystery, I think, as to why it got broken up. There are stories of these antiquities getting broken up in the 19th century occasionally usually by people from outside the area who don't really understand their cultural significance. Although in this instance, I'm not really sure why it got broken and no clear reason is given in the antiquarian report as to why it got destroyed. 
it, it was, gives the impression that it was destroyed completely. And I think that's why the site had been all but forgotten in local memory. Just describe the significance of this altar. From the illustration, as best we can uh, reconstruct, it looks like a wedge tomb, which is what we call a, a megalithic tomb, a tomb which dates to usually around four and a half thousand years to four thousand years ago in Ireland. There quite a common construction around that time. There's about 500 of them known across the island. They are usually considered to be the graves or the tombs, the final resting place of uh, a group of individuals, sometimes two or three, sometimes maybe as much as 20 or more people, where their cremated remains would be placed inside. In recent centuries as well, very often the folk understanding was that these were special places, that they were formerly places of, you know, sanctity or something like that. So for the most part, they were left alone. And that's why so many of them survive. What drew you to this one, though, in trying to find it? Well, it was a bit of a mystery. You know, everybody loves a good mystery. But this one... I I had read in the National Folklore Archives, they did a a survey between 1938 and 1939 where they were asking school children to talk amongst various different topics of folklore about their own area. And in one of these accounts, they talk about Altor Nigdene, the altar of the sun, and they give a very vague location as to where it was. So, you know, almost 100 years after it was supposedly destroyed, people still had a memory that there was something there on the hill. But again, in 1986, there was an archaeological survey of the peninsula, and that records that there was a tomb there. But again, the location was undetermined. And I live on the hill that this tomb was supposedly where where it was and I didn't know where it was so I was spending my lockdown walking the hill behind my house sometimes and looking at various different rock formations and wondering is this the remains of it and there was one that caught my eye but I wasn't sure if this was fully it and I needed confirmation from field archaeologists I think but then over the last couple of months I was involved in a project I'm I'm working on a deep mapping project with a university. I work for Sacred Heart University, which is based in Connecticut, but they have a campus here in Dingle. So what I did was I made a 3D model of this particular site that I suspected was all torn again. And I brought it back and I fed it into the computer and I looked at this 3D thing and I was revolving, turning it around on the screen. And I noticed that one of the stones was the same shape as something from the old illustration from, from 1838. And that, and that moment, was my Eureka moment. That was yeah. your Eureka moment. That was it. (laughs) And what did you say in that moment? Well, I I said to myself, gosh, I think this is it. I I need to show some experts and really get confirmation on this. So I put a package together and I sent it off to the Office of Public Works. But in the meantime, while I was waiting for a response from them, there was another archaeologist, Tony Bartlett, who's based in Kerry. And I showed him this 3D model that I had made. And he pointed out that the vegetation inside the footprint of where the tomb used to be was different from all the vegetation Mm -hmm. around. And he said this is a pretty solid indicator that this is disturbed ground, that there was something under the ground here. And he said, I think you're on the right track. The Office of Public Works, the OPW, they sent out an archaeologist, Cayman O'Brien, and he came up with me to the site and we had a look around and he was fairly certain as soon as he looked at it, he said, this is it. I think you, oh, this is it. So it we're going to put it back. Yeah. So he said, we'll put it back on the sites and monuments record and we'll record the latitude and longitude of it. And it'll go back on the official record now as being found. You know, to have this open question that had been floating around for 180 years to finally have it answered and to have it answered right in my backyard. You know, it's 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 a great feeling. So hundreds of years from now, when another radio host does an interview, they'll cite that antiquarian, Lady Chatterton and Billy. 
<laughs> Immortality at last. <laughs> I do have to ask, though, Billy, you mentioned the, the markers that the experts you were speaking with, you know, said, yeah. underlined for them that this could really be it. But at the same time, yeah. you said there's so many wedge tombs. So, you know, can you really know for sure that this is the altar? I think once we brought we brought up a blown up sketch of the original illustration and there are really only three substantial stones. There's 10 stones originally making up the tomb in Lady Chatterton's time, but three of them survive above the ground and are perfectly visible and two of them match pretty much exactly her illustration. So I think one stone was pretty good as a good lead, but once we had the second stone matching, that was really it. That was the slam dunk, I think. Billy, thank you. My pleasure. That was Irish Studies Professor Billy McGlynn in Ballyferreter, Ireland. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Nikki Haley has only a few hours left to convince Republicans in New Hampshire that she should be their candidate for president. She's the last challenger standing for the nomination against frontrunner Donald Trump. And tomorrow's vote in the state primary will be a test of her viability. With her other rival, Ron DeSantis, now out of the running, here is the pitch she made to voters at a campaign stop. It's now one fella and one lady left. So there were 14 people in this race. There were a lot of fellas. All the fellas are out, except for this one. And this comes down to what do you want? Do you want more of the same or do you want something new? Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley speaking on the campaign trail in New Hampshire ahead of tomorrow's primary. Kathy Holland is a lifelong Republican. She's backing Nikki Haley. We reached her in Sandown, New Hampshire. Kathy, Donald Trump seems very close to locking in this nomination. What would it mean to you if Nikki Haley were to stop him? Oh, I would be so heartened. This has been very difficult for so many of us who have been longtime Republicans to see our party sort of hijacked by a a guy whose typical behavior is bullying and name-calling and lies. Uh, I'm very disheartened about the state of of the party. I'm also disheartened about the state of this union that is so fractured, and I think Donald Trump is the one that brought all that to us. Beyond not being Donald Trump, what is it about (laughs) Nikki Haley, the candidate, that appeals to you? She has some excellent experience under her belt, and she's dealt with people in power before. Uh, Her coming up in politics was always challenging because everybody said you couldn't do that. Well, she did it, And, and she made changes once she got in her positions. And I'd love to see those same kind of changes, particularly the economic changes, come to the administration in Washington. I think it's very excellent that Nikki Haley is an accountant. And if we 
have ever needed someone who knows for a fact you can't spend more than you you have. Uh, it's Nikki Haley. The other strong point is having been the U.M. ambassador. Mm-hmm. She knows the players. She knows that field. Nikki Haley, though, did work under Donald Trump and did not speak out against him until now. And some don't think she's spoken out enough uh, against him as well. How does that sit with you? Well, having I've been a woman all my life, working around a bully, you have to find ways to still be heard without getting into it with the bully. I, I like to say that if you fight with a skunk, you're still going to come out stinking. And I think that she did what she had to do to be able to do her job. But Trump has picked up his rhetoric and she has she will punch back. And the time is now. Why do you think Donald Trump still appeals to so many other people in your party? Isn't that the weirdest thing? How can people be okay with having him as a president or even a candidate? He has a broken moral compass. He acts like a bloated fifth grader bully on on the field. His rhetoric is full of name calling and belittling. And he trusts his own intuition over the experts in a particular field. He had so many people in his administration that could have helped, but Donald Trump always has to be the smartest guy in the room. I can totally see not wanting four more years of Biden, but Trump is not the same answer to that problem. So if Nikki Haley were not to come through and not win the nomination, would you consider voting for Joe Biden? That's, uh, see, this is the conundrum. Even my Democratic friends say Joe's really not up to this, and they further say he's making a big mistake if he stays in the race, that he doesn't jettison Kamala Harris Mm -hmm. and get somebody in there that has something to offer. She has done zero. But Biden isn't Trump, and you've said you you dislike him intensely. Biden isn't Trump. So would you vote for him? I don't know that I could vote for either one of them. I would likely just write in somebody. I keep hoping something will happen that will back both of them out of the race. I'm hoping that Nikki Haley surprises everybody tomorrow, and I would be the happiest person in New Hampshire if that happened. I've spoken to people who left the Republican Party, high-profile people. Is that something that you've weighed as people as we've talked about, continue oh, yeah. to support him, yeah? Yeah, I, uh, I've i been a Republican all of my life, but I'm sick of going to the polls and holding my nose. I voted for Trump because I thought Hillary Clinton is just uh, an extremely corrupt individual. And, uh, boy, I we bit off more than we could chew with that. I voted for Biden last time because I was shocked at how rude and unpresidential and undisciplined Donald Trump was. And I thought this is it's an embarrassment to have a guy who actually thinks Putin and Kim Jong-un are his buddies. So I can't vote for him. I will not vote for him. How are you planning Ever. to spend primary day tomorrow? 
I'm going to be out at my polling place in the cold after I vote, uh, holding a sign and reporting into uh, Haley headquarters about turnout. We're expecting a record voter turnout in New Hampshire. That's according to our Secretary of State. Even though the Democratic primary is like not really a thing. So, yeah, there's going to be big numbers. You think Haley can do it? My gut tells me there's a big surprise coming tomorrow night, and I'm ready for it. Kathy, thank you. And I thank you, and uh, we'll just hope for the best tomorrow. Stay tuned. We will. Thanks, Kathy. Okay, bye-bye. Kathy Holland is a Republican voter who backs Nikki Haley. She's in Sandown, New Hampshire. Dean Robertson is no stranger to sketchy roads and snowy weather, but he says what he experienced last week was unlike anything he'd encountered before. The Winnipeg-based truck driver was headed north from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario last Tuesday when he found himself staring at a long line of stopped trucks just like his, a long line that he continued to stare at for nearly three days. Now he says the province needs to do more to protect drivers in the event of snow-induced road closures like the one he encountered on Highway 17 last week. We reached Dean Robertson in his truck today on his way to Sudbury, Ontario. Dean, thanks for pulling over for this conversation. But what are the conditions like on the road today compared to how it was the other day? Oh, the wheels are at least turning today. Um, it was a little bit uh, treacherous uh, last night around Nipigon area. Um, also the same swills and stuff, but it uh, cleared up uh, by the morning. So uh, we're very grateful that uh, we're not going through what we went through last week. We'll tell our listeners, when did it become clear to you last week that something was was really wrong on, on that stretch of Highway 17? So what happened is I came through on Monday morning. There wasn't an issue. Um, I actually traveled the whole section from Wawa to Botswana Bay with mild conditions, nothing serious. And uh, that evening when I uh, stopped, I checked the app and stuff. I always look for closures and stuff, and I see that uh, the road was closed there due to poor visibility. And then I went to Sudbury, I did all my stuff, and I came back on Tuesday late afternoon, and I, I saw that the road was still closed in both directions, according to the 511 app, and it showed that it uh, had been updated on Monday evening, 6 o'clock, but nothing on the Tuesday. And I left Sault Ste. Marie, I thought, well, possibly it's not, uh, it just hasn't updated and the road must be open because there was highway trucks coming in both directions. You assumed, because it hadn't been updated, you assumed the the road is probably okay, otherwise they would have told me. 100%. And then there are billboards as well that display if roads are closed and stuff like that, and nothing displayed while I was traveling. And uh, I got to Botswana Bay, and conditions were very, very bad. How bad? Describe it for our listeners. Put it this way, if you were standing outside, you would never be able to have a conversation with somebody else. Uh, The wind was howling and the swills were so bad 
that you battled to see the vehicle parked in front of you. That's how bad it was. And uh, totally understandable why the road is closed. But by then, there was such a backlog of trucks. Uh, I parked off, obviously couldn't go anywhere. And on the Wednesday, I kept monitoring the 511 app. Now on the Wednesday, it was updating. Well, just let me, let me jump in there because we're now talking the next day. So you, you're yes. stranded in that spot. Did you expect this ordeal to last three days? No, I, I, I've never uh, experienced uh, something lasting so long. We used to road closures around 12 hours. You know, by the next day, mm-hmm. the roads are, the weather's changed. So this was definitely a very extreme situation. How did you all survive out there? Well, I, I'm one of these people that are a little bit over cautious. And in this case, I'm quite grateful for it. Yeah, I off. always carry a lot, lot of extra cool drinks, water, food, stuff like that. But there were a lot of people there that are company drivers and that that are strand. They don't have the, they living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have a lot of money. They can't just stock up. Um, some You've got to understand, some of these drivers are drivers that drive, say, between Nipagon and Sault Ste. Marie. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they're not even in highway trucks that have a sleeping facility in them. So they just slept in their so, cabs then? Yes, correct. There were several people that just didn't have enough for such a three to four day stretch. How'd they get through? They, <laughs> there was a team driver, which is two drivers that take turns to drive. So it's a grandson and the grandfather, and they had made food for their trip. And wow. uh, the grandson finished all of his food. And only the grandfather had food left and they were, you know, just breaking piece off by piece off. And it sounds dramatic, but it's 100 percent the truth. Eventually, OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, did turn up and extricate you. How did they do that? Okay, first of all, this all came about that the police came out through uh, my wife was a big contributing factor. And it's uh, getting on social media and saying this is what these guys are going through. Uh, because one of the truck drivers phoned the OPP and they, they said, the situation's under control, you have to just wait it out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the word got out there in two hours, there was OPP vehicles that came. And they, first of all, I must say I'm very grateful for them getting myself out and some of the other drivers, but I just feel more could have been done. Um, they were did a few runs up and down the line, and uh, if anybody saw them and, and stop them. Then they said, well, would you like to leave? We can take you up to an area that we've had cleared. They got a snowplow to clear mm-hmm. an area in an intersection where we could turn around. And uh, I, I was one that said, sure, I would like to do that. But I just feel that the OPP should have come out earlier and assisted us in getting turned around, not so many days later and having to make such a, a issue on social media to get anything done. Ontario's Ministry of Transportation spoke to our CBC News colleague, Kate Rutherford, and said it's 511 app, the app you were using. They say it was updated 17 times during this particular closure. Didn't give you, as you've said, the information you needed uh, at the time you needed it. What specifically would you have liked to see from the ministry and the OPP to make sure you and your fellow drivers were safe? In this case, I feel the road should have been closed off at Sault Ste. Marie where drivers have all the facilities and and signs up like other places, local traffic only. 
But having it closed off 80 kilometers away from, let's call it civilization, uh, it, it's inevitable that you're going to sit with problems. And I just feel that the situation, we could have been assisted earlier. Dean, thank you for your time. Drive safe. Thank you so much. Dean Robertson is a long-haul trucker who spent nearly three days stuck on an Ontario highway last week. We reached him en route to Sudbury, Ontario today. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.